This week, switching to Mark and switching to our text for the day, this week we saw in the news a, a, an incredible story unfolding that week or daily it seemed like new information was, was coming out. As we saw the Italian cruise ship on its side in the waters, and it's like wondering what happened? What happened? And as the story has come out, we find that much of the fault has gone to the captain. And the captain, through a series of misjudgments and a series of mistakes, throughout the process of this disaster, has been responsible at different levels for a number of things that have happened. And as you hear the story, as you hear what happened, this captain was was preoccupied with other things, had other intentions in mind, and he had forgotten his role as captain. He wanted to pass a little closer to shore, presumably to have a crew member be able to see his homeland. And so he veered from the course that he was supposed to go on to come a little closer to shore, to do something nice, but it veered from the course he was to be on. And they hit rocks. Soon after that, in, in conversations, radio conversations with the authorities in the port, the answer was to what happened, oh, we've had a blackout. We've had a power blackout. To, to, because not wanting to admit how serious it was, wanting to save face, whatever it was, and, and come to find out the ship is taking on water and is tipping. Saw stories of the captain who, in his effort to save himself, ended up leaving the ship early and leaving the passengers and many of the crew on board, which is something as a captain you never do. When interviewed, he said, I tripped into a lifeboat. and couldn't get out, even when he was ordered back to the ship. And again, a focus on something other than his task, on something other than his role as captain, kept him from doing his duty. And and it's just sad to see how this all unfolded in the lives that were lost. And we praise God for the many lives that were saved. But as I was thinking through the text today, we we come to a text where groups are coming at Jesus with all kinds of different traps and all kinds of different distractions. And Satan has one goal in mind at this point. To stop Jesus from doing what his plan was to do. Now Satan had no clue that there was no way he was going to stop Jesus from doing what his plan was. And that Satan's Attempts were all part of the plan and all part of how God Almighty was bringing Jesus to the cross to pay the price for our sins. But we see group after group coming to Jesus and trying to trap Him and distract Him and keep Him from the task. And we see Jesus answering them and bringing them back to why He came. And bringing them back to who God is and a relationship with God and that the purpose was the kingdom of God not these other things. So this morning, we're going to fly through the text. There's a lot of verses. Some of you are probably already saying, there is no way on earth he's going to get through all those verses. We'll see. I'm not going to promise anything. But we'll see four different stories here and four different attempts, things that could have derailed Jesus, things that he could have gotten caught up into that would have stopped him from pursuing what God wanted him to pursue, what God's plan was. And as we study it, so many of these come to mind in our own lives. We can get so distracted with things that we forget that our purpose is the kingdom of God. 
that we forget our purposes, our walk with God and telling others about Christ. I and mean, we could sit and talk politics all day, couldn't we? It's all kinds of things to talk, talk about right now. And we could never even get to the grace and love of Christ with somebody. And while that conversation of politics may be good at some points, depending on how we're discussing it, if we use that to forget about why we're here and the conversations we're to be having in our core of life, which is Jesus Christ Himself, then it has distracted us from what God would have us look at. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Mark 12, verse 13. We're going to look at four issues opponents use to attempt to trap Jesus, to stop Him, to distract Him from the mission. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. We're going to look at 13 through 17 first. We're going to take each of the the questions and the answers separately as they each have a different topic. There's a saying about when you get together with family or friends, never talk about three things. You know what those things are? Politics? Religion? Money. Politics, religion, money. Well, we're about to talk about two of those things, and next week we get to the third. Jesus just faces it head on. These are the issues people bring up. These are the issues He deals with. First issue that opponents are used to attempt to derail Jesus or stop Him from the mission is that of politics. And we need to stay focused on the kingdom by respecting authority that God has put in place. Stay focused on the kingdom by respecting the authority. And the key there is that God has put in place. Because we know from Scripture that God has put all authority in place. And He has ordained that authority. Let's start reading at verse 13. Keep in mind, this is right after, this is still Tuesday probably, possibly Wednesday, but probably Tuesday. And this is after the cleansing of the temple and the interaction last week between the religious leaders and Jesus where He calls them the tenants that are going to be thrown out and judged. And they know that He's speaking against Him even if they don't quite know what He was saying. And so they're angry. They're angry and they're more committed than ever that this man must die. And so they start sending people to trap him and finding ways that they can remove him from the scene and still save face. So in verse 13, we see the first of these questions. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now now keep in mind, right from the start, Pharisees and Herodians, they didn't like each other. They despised each other. And we don't have time to get into all the reasons why, but these two would not agree on anything unless they really hated someone. Two things that bring people together, either a mutual love for each other or a mutual hate for someone else. They had the mutual hate for someone else. Pharisees and some of the Herodians, they came to him to trap him in his talk. They're looking to snare him, much like an animal trap would close around the foot of an animal. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And the trap is set. The trap is set. And you might say, well, okay, I don't see what the trap is there. It helps us to understand what's going on politically at the time, because this is a very political question. And they're trying to trap him in the realm of politics. But how do they start in verse 14? Do you notice that? 
flattery. They set him up with flattery. You're a man of God. And, and I, I probably read that verse just way too nice. Teacher, we know that you are true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. And, and so right from the start, they're saying, you're a man of integrity, so we know you'll answer and you'll answer truth. You don't care about anyone's opinion, which he had just confronted them that they did, and they, they wouldn't speak the truth because of that. You don't care about anyone's opinion, so I know you'll just say what's on your mind. Just come out with it. And they're, they're trying to trap him. For you are not swayed by appearances, which is true, but truly teach the way of God, also true. And they come to the trap, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And they're, they're posing a question to Jesus that really comes down to, do I insult Caesar and the government and be branded as a, a rebel, someone that's rebelling against government? Or do I insult the people by saying, yes, pay taxes, because the people hated the government? And, and the religious leaders knew that the only thing keeping them from arresting Jesus and killing him right on the spot was that the crowds liked him. And so either way they win. If he's an insurrectionist and if he's against the government, Rome will take care of the problem for them. They'll take him, crucify him, he's off the scene. If he answers, pay taxes, the people now hate him and they have free reign to go arrest him and take him away with the people's support. Remember, they were all about what do people think? They need to look good in front of people. And so they've, they've painted Jesus into a corner that they don't see a way out of. A couple things about the tribute that's mentioned there um, in verse 14. In verse 14, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And the issue here, the tax at stake was, it was a tax that was a tribute tax that came about in AD 6 when when Judea there became a province, officially became a province of Rome, and they took a census and they instituted a poll tax or a head tax. Basically, for the privilege of being alive, you were taxed. The alternative wasn't really good. And, and so they would, they would poll you and they would tax you, and the tax was one denarius or about one day's wages is what it was worth. I think we have a picture of that coin that we'll put up there. So this was the coin that you had to pay. It was a Roman coin. And it was interesting because this coin really represented a a huge political statement to the Jewish people. At the time that this poll tax was was instituted, there was a revolt from the Zealots, from Judas the Galilean. And his point was, how can you pay tribute to Rome? Aren't you honoring Rome and supporting Rome and, and giving up tribute to God? And so for them, it was a political issue. It was also a spiritual issue. It also represented subjection to Rome. This was a, a picture, an inscription of the, the Roman Caesar, the, the Roman emperor. And on this coin, the inscription was Tiberius Caesar, August, son of the divine Augustus. And the coin was proclaiming that Caesar was at least semi-divine. And so divinity was being attached to this. And so there was a group that was saying, if you pay tribute with this coin, you are acknowledging Rome's authority over you, and you are acknowledging that Caesar is divine. And that's blasphemy. 
And so the leaders had Jesus trapped. Some the zealots refused to pay. Others were just angry about paying it. And Jesus has a decision to make. How do you answer this question? Do we pay taxes? Do we support this government? Now, for us, sometimes I hear, well, I don't know if I can pay taxes to a government that does some things I disagree with. Well, let's just put this in context. This government, there was a lot to disagree with. It was a brutal government. When, when the Christians would have been reading this, when it was delivered to Mark, there would have been Christians being killed. The government was doing all kinds of things that were contrary to God's Word. And so Jesus' answer is very pertinent to today. But what does he do? If he supports it, he supports blasphemous claims to the people. If he doesn't, he's accused of insurrection. He has to choose sides. So his answer in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he knew that they were trying to trap him. He said to them, why put me to the test? He he knows their hypocrisy. He confronts their hypocrisy. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. Okay, let's pause for just a moment. Who doesn't have one? Jesus, right? Who does have one? The leaders accusing him. See, they also believed that if you even carried it into the temple, that was blasphemy. And so Jesus, brilliantly, because he's God, okay, show me a denarius. And they pull one out. He's already half won the the argument right there. Let me look at it. And they brought one. This coin, it was made out of silver. And he holds up the coin or he shows the coin and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Pretty direct answer. You really can't say, I don't know. Or or get around that. It's Caesar's inscription. It's his face. And one of the things that was, was common to their way of thinking was money, when it had the face of Caesar, it ultimately belonged to Caesar. Okay? And so he could take it back at any time. It was just on loan to whoever had it for commerce, but it belonged to the emperor. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. See, Jesus' answer was, okay, let's look at the coin. Look at the face. It has Caesar's face on it. He made the coin. He gave you the coin. You're enjoying his roads. You're enjoying his services. Give him back what is already his. And in so doing, no one could really argue with that. No one could say that that was blasphemy because he was just saying, well, it's his anyway. Give it back to him. No one could say that this was somehow supporting Roman government and their oppression because it's theirs Give it back to them. In fact, render there literally means to pay back a debt. To pay a debt. And Jesus here is teaching very clearly to submit to government. To obey them. To give them back what is their due. It's a sign of of honor. It's a sign of respect. But He didn't stop there. And in each of these stories, we see an attempt to trap him, an attempt to steer him off course. And he could have gotten into a long discussion of how evil Rome was or how we do this. Where does he come back to in the second half of his answer? In just a little sentence. 
It says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What has God's inscription on it? His, his image? What was that? Us. We read that verse this morning out of Genesis chapter 1. We are made in His image. We have His face on us, His picture on us, His inscription on us. And Jesus here contrasts. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But Caesar is not the ultimate authority. He is not the ultimate goal. God's authority is final. And render unto God what is God's. And in so doing, he's saying that all of us answer to a higher authority. We answer to God. And in that teachable moment, he turns it from a political discussion back to where it should have been, one of who God is, what God's authority over us is, and what our relationship to that authority is. He also differentiates between Caesar and God. In that statement, he denounces Caesar's claim that he is divine because he separates the two. I mean, all in one sentence. This is You just couldn't get any better than this. In the early 1900s, a, a young lawyer was reading this for the first time and he drops his Bible when he reads it because he's learning law. He says, that's just brilliant. That's amazing. No one could have answered better than that. It's exactly right. Because God is the God of all wisdom. And so Jesus here defines an order. Render under Caesar's what is Caesar's. Respect government. But God is supreme. Render unto God what is God's. A couple of quick hits because we need to keep moving. How do we do that? How, what should our view toward government be, to politics be? How do we keep from getting so involved and engrossed and consumed with politics? Because they could do that, right? We can talk about South Carolina's results all day. How do we keep from that and keep coming back to render under God what is God's? That we have His inscription on us, which means we owe a debt to Him with our lives, with what we do. I put down four points there. The first one is pay your taxes. It's appropriate this time of the year. Tax days are coming. Pay your taxes. And we see that here, but also we have several other passages and I put them there. We don't have time. We could do a whole sermon on just this. But look those up sometime. Romans 13, 6, 7 says just that. The government is serving us. They are providing services to us. We're to honor them by giving them the debt that we owe. Every penny. No questionable deductions. No unreported income. Now, I hope I'm preaching to the choir. But when we pay taxes, we are to obey God by obeying the authorities God has put over us. There was a sad day in 1987. At midnight one spring evening, seven million American children disappeared. I don't know if you remember that. Seven million American children disappeared. It was April 15th, and the IRS had just changed a rule. Instead of merely listing the name of each dependent child, you had to provide a Social Security number for each dependent child. And there were 7 million less deductions that year for children. 
We need to pay our taxes. Work with them, but honor them in that way. If we get into situations where we can't, then work with them. Work with their rules. Work with what they will allow. And find ways to do that. Render under Caesar's what is Caesar's. Second part of politics and government, we're called to obey government. Romans 13, 1 and 2, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, to be subject to government because God has sovereignly appointed that government. And so to disobey what God has sovereignly appointed is to disobey God. Now there's limits to that, and we see that with render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. If government asks us to do something that's immoral, something that is contrary to Scripture, then no, we shouldn't do, do that. If government asks us to perform an abortion, we know that that is contrary to Scripture, and no, we should not do that. But those are exceptions. This is very real in our house. Our, our, some of you have told this story too, but our, our son was greatly impacted by the law on um, January 1st, the new year. And the, the first day he was going to school, he got up from breakfast and said, I hate the governor. <laughs> now we had a long talk because that is not what I'm saying. That is not obeying. That is not respect. And so we talked about that. The law changed where he had to go back into a car seat. Um, he, he was able to be, not be in one and now he had to go back in one. And, and we talked through, okay, how do we respond to this? How do we respect that? And, and, and we explained to him, Mark, this is the law. Yes, we may disagree with it. Yes, we've written letters. And, and yes, we've, we've made our voices heard in a legal, respectful way. But this is the law. And so the car seat's going back in the car, and you're going back in the car seat. It's as simple as that. Can't really say there's something biblical, that I have a biblical opposition to putting my child in a car seat. And so that's the law, and we need to obey it and a great teachable moment for my son. Third thing there, respect government. Respect government. There's a difference between obedience and respecting. It has to do with our attitude toward government, our attitude toward those that are in authority over us. doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything. There are all kinds of things that we will agree with, disagree with right now with, with some of our our political leaders. And we should disagree with, and we should voice that in a proper way. But when it becomes disrespectful, we've crossed a biblical line. When we start calling names, when we start making personal attacks, we cross a line. There's just no room for that. There's no room for some of the cheap slams that we get so much enjoyment out of. Maybe to put it in a way we understand it a little bit more, how would I feel if my child said those things to me? Would I consider it disrespectful? Yeah, some of the things, yeah. And it's hard when we, when we have an administration that many of you disagree with so many things with, and, and rightfully so, I believe, biblically. But we do that in a respectful, honoring way because those are the authorities that God has put into place. Finally, letter D there, we're to pray for them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, 
were to pray for them and not for their death and not for their destruction. To, to, to pray for God to be working in their lives. To pray that God will be changing their hearts. To pray that God will be using the demands of leadership to change them. Pray for them. So the first point of distraction was politics. The first issue that they tried to trap Jesus on. And he turned it from a political issue to a spiritual issue. Where are you at with God? Second, moving on to verses 18 through 27, theology. Some of you are like, wait a minute. You're saying theology is bad. I'm not saying theology is bad. We'll, we'll get there. Stay focused on the kingdom by not confusing knowing about God with knowing God. Stay focused on the kingdom by not confusing knowing about God with knowing God. Do you see the difference? And this one's near and dear my heart because I love theology. I teach it. I study it. I've gone through seminary. But I've also watched men and women completely fall apart in their spiritual lives while studying theology every moment of the day. Because they've forgotten that it's about a living relationship with Almighty God and they've reduced it to just a series of facts. And so I would present that this is an issue that's just as important today. For those that go through Bible college, this is a danger. For those that go through seminary, for those that have been raised in the church their whole lives, it's so easy to reduce Christianity to facts and forget that God wants a relationship with us. He wants us to love Him. We're going to see that in the verses to come. Verse 18, we get to the trap. A theological attempt to trap Him. And the Sadducees came to him. And, and a couple things about the Sadducees. This is a, um, they're, they're part of the Sanhedrin, but this is a group that only believed the first five books of the Old Testament were God's Word. The rest we can get, just get rid of. Let's just stick with the first five. And a couple things that they didn't think existed in the first five. One, they didn't believe in angels. Two, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay, so basically the afterlife they struggled with. And so they came to Jesus, and that's important to understand their question. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This comes back to Deuteronomy 25, Leverite leverite marriages, where if if a husband died and there was no male offspring to preserve the line, then the brother would step in and take this woman as his wife. Their first male child would carry on the name of the deceased brother. So they set up this scenario. Okay, Jesus, in verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection. Remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now those that did believe in the resurrection, their concept was you would be reanimated or your, your body would just come back and you'd continue life with all your relationships and exactly how it is now, just without, without sin in, in, in heaven. 
but they are using a, a contrived story, a hypothetical example, to attempt to show how silly the theology of the resurrection was, the absurdity of it. And so they set up this argument that they think represents what, what those that believe in the resurrection would say. It's a straw man argument. And we do the same thing today, where we present the other side, but we present it in a way that's incomplete, that we can refute it. And so they present the other side of the resurrection, and then they say, okay, it went through seven people, and whose, whose wife, whose husband will she have in heaven? See, Jesus, isn't this absurd? And they try to trap him theologically. Jesus answers in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? (laughs) Sorry. Emphasis mine. Although he says it again. He's pointing out that they're wrong. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Two things. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. (laughs) Ouch. You don't know what you're reading. And he's going to keep his argument to the first five books of the Bible. Okay, fine. You accept those. Let's deal with those. And you don't have a clue of the power of God. Because God has the authority over all things, including death. He can resurrect, and it doesn't have to look like you think it's going to look like. And he deals with that one first. Verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And he, he first addresses their, their view of what, if resurrection was true, what it would look like. And he says, no, Jesus is going, God is going to resurrect us, and it's going to be so different from life here on earth. Praise God. It's not going to have the stain of sin. And, and our focus, when we are in heaven with, with God, our focus is going to be God. Serving Him, worshiping Him. That is the focus. And so he says there won't be marriage. They will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Just a, a quick note, it doesn't mean we will become angels. Sometimes you see that and hear that, that we all get wings in heaven, and that's even a wrong view of angels. We won't become angels, but we'll be like them in that we will have an immortal body and we will be with our Lord and Savior for all eternity, worshiping Him and saying, Holy, Holy. And so Jesus here first counters their view of even what the resurrection would look like. But it's going to be completely different altogether than life here. But then he goes to the Old Testament, to a passage they would have been very familiar with and honored. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Just in case they missed the you are wrong at the beginning. So he says, okay, let's talk about theology. Let's talk about what Scripture says. And he brings up a a passage where Moses is in front of the burning bush and a passage where God is saying, I can save you just like I've been the God to your ancestors. But notice he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac and I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am. And he's bringing up the covenant relationship that he had with them, the promises he made, and that he is still keeping those promises. So, so Jesus' point is this. If they're dust 
If they're rotting in the ground, how well has God kept His promises? Would He even talk about it like an ongoing relationship? No, it's ridiculous. And He's pointing out that their own Scripture that they accepted is loaded with illustrations that life doesn't end here, but life continues in the presence of God for those that know Him and continues in judgment for those that don't. What a wonderful promise of the resurrection. Not only is it hope for you and I that there's something more than this world, but hope when we lose loved ones that know Christ. that We will see them in eternity with Christ. But I love how Jesus takes the discussion of theology and He comes back to a covenant love relationship with God. He says it's not about facts. It's about that He is the God of the living. And He loves you. And He wants to covenant with you. And this verse says He wants to protect you and save you and be with you. It's the reference in Exodus 3.6. And so Jesus addressed theology as we should. We should know it. We should address it. But we should never separate it from relationship with Christ. Third and fourth points are just a little shorter as Jesus has a couple more questions and we'll hit these pretty quickly. The third one is legalism. Stay focused on the kingdom by not reducing Christianity to cold obedience. It's easy to do, isn't it? List of things we should do, list of things we shouldn't do, we're good. We're mature Christians. And in verse 28, Jesus begins to address that. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? See, they had a number of commands, 613 of them to be precise, that they were following. And they often had discussions, well, how do we organize them? Maybe between the ones that are hard to keep and the ones that are easy to keep, the ones that have a a worse penalty, the ones that have a lighter penalty, which one's more important, which one's not important. And those conversations happen all the time. And so the scribe comes to Jesus and and asks the same thing and probably a little more well-meaning than the others. We we see in in the other Gospels that there was still an aspect of testing, but in Mark we see that he was willing to hear the answer. A little bit different. And the question is, is really coming down to, okay, what do I have to do? What's really important for me to keep? How do I honor God by obedience? And we should honor God by obedience, but that's not the only aspect. See, strict obedience misses the point. A businessman was checking out of his hotel and realized his briefcase was missing. And to the bellhop, he said, hey, could you run up to room 1484 and see if my briefcase is there and hurry? I'm late for leaving for the airport. He waited. Bellhop came back down and said, yep, still there. did exactly what he was asked. Strict obedience. Missed the whole point. And God's answer says, here's the point. Here's the point. As Jesus answers in verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And at this point, he's quoting the Shema, which they quoted twice a day out of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. 
and, and he's showing that, that God is one. Our obedience is based in the character of God, who God is. And then what God desires, we're to love Him with all of ourselves, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, every aspect. And then Jesus adds a second command from Leviticus 19.18. When He says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus says, love God, love others. And he sums up the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are about our relationship with God. The last six commandments are about our relationship with each other. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love others. And, and they would have heard this, oh, neighbor, that means those that are Jews, those that are, are literally the, the sons of my countrymen. And we know from one of the other Gospels that Jesus then goes into the discussion of the Good Samaritan and said, huh, actually neighbor is everyone. Love God and love others. Not just with feelings. Not just when we we feel like, okay, I can show love, but with our actions, with our obedience. It's interesting to read on the response after that. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one and there is no other besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the scribe began to get it. He, he began to realize that God wasn't into... The, he didn't just want the, the sacrifices. Yes, he wanted obedience there, but he wanted it out of a love for God and a love for our neighbor. And the scribe got that. And he said that back to Jesus. And and Jesus' answer is amazing. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You're understanding what God wants. He wants you to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants a relationship with you. He wants that to be the basis of sacrifices. That to be the basis of obedience. But here's the thing. Knowing that in his head wasn't enough. Not far means he was beginning to understand, but he wasn't quite there. It would be like jumping nine feet across a ten-foot chasm. You're almost there. But you still fall. You still end up at the bottom of the chasm. And the missing ingredient was an acceptance of Jesus Christ as His Lord. A following and a repenting coming to Christ and saying, I will follow you. I will be your disciple. We don't know if he made that that jump. We don't know if he came to that point. But here we have Jesus combating legalism or, or cold obedience with obedience that comes from a love for God. See, if we just focus on the rules, we lose sight of the kingdom. If we begin to realize that God is holy and I love Him with every ounce of my being and what He hates, I hate, and what He loves, I love, then you get obedience that's a joy, not a chore. Then we're walking as the kingdom intends.
Let's stop there. We'll hit, hit number four next week. I told you I wasn't promising. But number four ties in as well to the next couple scenes, and so we can hit that next week. But what distracts us from the kingdom? Sometimes it's good things. A discussion of, of politics can be a good, healthy thing, as we should be involved, and that's part of respecting the government as being part of the process. Being involved in theology and a discussion of theology is a fantastic thing, unless that's it, unless that's where it ends. My father-in-law and I could talk theology all day, and he would whip out God's Word, and he would say, well, what does it say about this? And he never knew Christ. We see obedience just for the sake of obedience isn't what Jesus was after either. I challenge us to come back to the core, to move past these, these things that, that can consume us and be consumed with love for God. Be consumed with the kingdom. How do discussions, as Jesus did with every one of these, come back to our relationship with God? How do we take discussions with people and not end up so stuck on the trivial and stuck on the extra things that we forget the most important thing we will ever touch on in our life. Love God. Let people know you do. Love others. Let people know you do. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I come to this text and I am amazed again at your wisdom, at your focus, at your answers that are always bringing people back to you. Lord, put that focus in us as your church, that above all else, we are here to serve you and bring you glory. Everything else leads to that. Nothing is to replace that. May we be a church, Lord, give us the strength to be a church that supports and honors our government while standing for truth. That craves theology in the context of of love for God. That obeys you because we love our holy God. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.